Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. It would be my recommendation we should do that. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. That is Republican leader, Hackaroos, Kevin McCarthy, who's up this year, going to be nominated for Best Spoken Word Performance <laughs> in the Grammys, uh, talking about chopping the old 25th Amendment on lunatic President Donald Trump. Somehow he, he forgot the instruction book on that a few days later. I'm joined by my partner in crime and bloviating here, the great David Axelrod, and we have two spectacular guests. They're the talk of the town. Yeah. They are in the middle of all this, and if they have a tape recorder and they're coming towards you, run for your life. Who do we have? <laughs> we have the great troublemakers themselves, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns from the New York Times, author of the new bestseller, This Shall Not Pass, uh, Talk of the Town, if the town is Washington, but other places as well. Welcome, you guys. Uh, we're going to talk more about... Uh, more about McCarthy and other aspects of your book uh, later on here, but uh, for now, let's uh, let's address some of the current goings on and news and, of the day. Jmart, you so were much. talking before we uh, we began about the Pennsylvania Senate race, yeah. which is is kind of a drama on the GOP side. You know, Donald Trump has weighed in on on behalf of Dr. Oz who he says has great celebrity power, but currently sits at a 2941 approval rating among GOP primary voters in uh, in Pennsylvania. His uh, Dave McCormick, his his opponent, tried his best to get Trump's endorsement. But there's a whole new storyline here. Uh, explain what that storyline is. Well, uh First of all, thanks for having us, guys. This is a real treat, and we know that your audience uh, uh, is some of the hardiest political junkies out there. And just to show to Murphy, uh, I have complete message discipline. Uh, the book uh, is available now at retailers and on Amazon. This will not pass. Would love for you guys to pick up a copy as soon as you possibly can. That's great. But let me just say, because you can't see, we're looking at each other on Zoom, but take the sandwich board off, will you? I mean, that's a that's a little much. They can't even see it. Yeah, we're we're pretty pretty cynical here. We're in politics, but even we are shocked and offended that you would mention this cannot pass available at your this neighborhood bookstore, Amazon.com. Yeah. This will not pass. I'll tell you what, it'll future. pass from the Amazon warehouse to your ready eyes with a simple click on your mobile device or laptop. We but anyway, not, back to Pennsylvania. As we were saying. We got a horse running up the middle. We have this epic war between Doc Oz, TV doctor, yes. no, it's and fantastic. David McCormick, former master of the universe hedge fund guy turned Trumpy, at least right. rent a Trumpy. And now there's a development. What's going on? And you guys have done a lot of races over the years. And this is a sort of classic formulation in so many primaries. I mean, the most famous one historically is probably the 2004 uh, Democratic caucus in Iowa, where you had Howard Dean and Dick Gebhardt beating each other to a pulp. And then obviously John Kerry is able to sort of rise Phoenix light from the ashes yeah. uh, and start his comeback. Because when you've got a multi-candidate race and candidate A and candidate B go at it, it offers a lane for candidate C. And that is what's happening right now in the Pennsylvania GOP Senate primary is Oz and McCormick are just going at it, spending millions of dollars on the airwaves there. Uh, and have an incredible footprint. And there is a woman whose name is Kathy Barnett, who is being overwhelmed uh, on TV, but has real grassroots support. She's an African-American conservative. She's got a really fascinating life story. Her mom was 12 years old uh, when she had her uh, and was raped. And um, look, I think in this moment, uh, that kind of profile uh, and somebody who, by the way, is also a uh, hardcore, uh, you know, uh, Trump acolyte. That's a pretty compelling message for a lot of grassroots Republicans who I think for different reasons have skepticism about both Oz and McCormick. Uh, and so this could be a chance for her to come up the middle. 
Uh, well, I don't they, 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 they have skepticism for a good reason. I mean, right. they're both basically fake MAGA guys. Right. They're right about each other. You know, yeah, exactly. uh, McCormick ran a huge hedge fund. And uh, believe me, I think he'd be an excellent senator, but he did the Faustian deal. And Oz is a TV star, decided to get out of, you know, peddling vitamins on 1-800 line and join the MAGA parade. So and the primary voters can smell that fakeness. In fairness to him, Mike, I'm not sure that he is out of the vitamin business. Right. Well, he better take some because he's not doing very well uh, here. He's, you know, unlike unlike the situation in Ohio, Alex, where uh, uh, J.D. Vance shot ahead on the strength of the Trump endorsement. That's not been the case in Pennsylvania. It hasn't that hasn't been the vitamin that uh, Dr. Oz needed or expected. And now uh, it really doesn't feel like he's going to. You know, Trump was there the other night. They introduced him. I don't know. Am I wrong about this? It sounded like he was booed. Uh, no, there were there were definitely boos, and I, I do think at his own rally. Yeah, I do think it's one of these sort of uh, interesting moments where the voters actually do really seem to be uh, onto the scam for both of the leading candidates in this race. That look, they it, it, Pennsylvania Republicans have this sense uh, that McCormick and Oz uh, are kind of trying to pull a fast one on them, uh, and they're right. Uh, neither of them, uh, you know, lived in the state uh, until very recently, and neither of them uh, is a sort of longtime uh, hardcore ideological conservative. Neither of them uh, has particularly deep uh, MAGA credentials. And if they want the genuine article, uh, boy, have they got it in this uh, third candidate who Jonathan was talking about, uh, Kathy Barnett. Now, look, I think it's it's an interesting statement on potentially the limitations uh, of Trump's endorsement. Um, if he can't get Oz through uh, after all that, I also think it's an interesting uh, sort of, um, you know, potentially for McCormick, if he doesn't end up as the as the nominee, I do think it's worth kind of contemplating the road not taken there. Like, what if you had actually just run uh, as a pretty conventional uh, Republican business yeah. guy, political yeah. outsider, spent some time in government, but not of government? Like, I don't know. In most of the races I've covered, that's a pretty winning profile in a Republican primary. Historically, that that's totally where the gravity is. You know, Barnett is, there's a thing in Republican primaries, too. You're seeing it in Michigan in the governor's primary with uh, uh, Craig, who was former Detroit police chief. Republican grassroots primary voters love an African-American conservative. Because there's a little bit of we're tired of being told we're racist all the time uh-huh. by the elites. So here's here's somebody we can get behind because we believe the same thing who also happens to be black. So there. And she's got a little of that rocket fuel, too. I don't know if she'll make it all the way or not, but she's a problem, I think, more for Oz, who who is a l- little more running the bumpy grassroots message, I think, than McCormick is, who's still trying to wink at the regulars. And he's got most of the regulars. So if she is a catalyst... I think it may net-net help McCormick catch up a little. Or maybe she blows through Gray Davis style as the nominee. It could happen. I, you know, uh, interestingly, uh, J-Mart, uh, she was uh, featured on Steve Bannon's podcast this week. Right. Or was it last week? And he said, you know, he was the one, it was now, it was a headline in the political story today, called her the ultra MAGA. Yeah. Ultra MAGA. And the implication was the others were kind of fake MAGAs. Um, what does this say? I mean, the question is, I mean, it is interesting because this is still Trump's party. It's clearly Trump's party. That's why people make these Faustian bargains. And the movement supports Trump to a degree, to a large degree. But this is a this is a case where the movement may outrun Trump. Yeah. And, you know, Mike raises an important point here about the grassroots. Finally. Affection. Uh, for for example, for, for, for black, for he's black been waiting a year to get that line. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan, we're bickering now. Go ahead. The big cycles for Republicans: ninety four, twenty ten, and now potentially this year. There was always a, a few high profile uh, black candidates who won. Um, you know, J.C. Watts in 94, Tim Scott in 2010. Yeah. I think you're going to see that this year in that House. Uh, uh, gov and potentially Senate uh, races. Uh, it's going to be a really uh, fascinating element uh, of this cycle. Let me let me just interject something here. Here in Illinois, 
Ken Griffin, who is a yeah. extraordinarily wealthy Republican donor, has now put forty-five million dollars behind a, a, a basically uh, a heretofore unknown suburban mayor named Richard Irvin, trying to get him nominated for governor to challenge J.B. Pritzker, the Democrat. So he's making a big bet that if he can get this guy through the primary, that he will have crossover appeal and maybe even cut into some of the black support that uh, that that Pritzker uh, uh, has in in, uh, in urban areas around the state. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it's possible that you know you could have uh, Illinois, Michigan nominate African American Republicans um, um, this year. Um, Michigan tried it before. Let, let me just say, it tends to be. In a general election, the magic tends not to work. Now, maybe the future is yet to be made. We all remember Bill Lucas in the 90s in Michigan. Very impressive guy, Wayne County exec, which is the big Detroit County FBI agent. And the, then it was a more cynical, well, Lucas is an impressive guy. We nominate him. We're going to get all the Republicans and the African-Americans. Well, no. The fact is he underperformed with Republicans, and he didn't get African-Americans. So there's always a little too clever by half calculus. But in a Demo- excuse me, Republican primary, there's appeal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really going to get road tested th- in this year. And this is a good Republican year coming up, it looks like. So who knows? Jamar, we're just testing you to see if you can remember the point you were starting to make when I interrupted you about five minutes no, ago. No, you were talking about the sort of like MAGA outrunning Trump himself. Yes, and, yes. I, and, and like, no, I think that that that's totally um, what's possible in Pennsylvania. I also think if you like go down to Georgia, I mean, it's not like Brian Kemp. Uh, is running as like a sort of Jim Leach style model. Yeah, exactly. Public. Yes. I mean, like Brian Kemp is running. It's like pretty fire and brimstone uh, conservative, and um, uh, it is you know could potentially win with the votes of people who love Donald Trump. Well, that's yeah. why it was so dumb for Trump to pick a fight with Kemp, one incumbent governor, and two, you've got somebody who can swim in the MAGA sea every bit as well as Trump can there. Makes him very hard to take out. I think he was ouchy about that election thing. I'm not sure. Well, yeah, I know why. A Trump grievance again, but just (laughs) just strategically. Back to Pennsylvania for one last point. I think the broader point there uh, that touches on both Kemp uh, and Oz is that Trump's uh, endorsements here are not necessarily being driven by some uh, sort of grand strategic calculus, right? He endorsed Dr. Oz because he's friends with Dr. Oz. He endorsed against Brian Kemp because he hates Brian Kemp. Uh, It's not that he sort of had this uh, well-crafted a scheme to uh, take over the governorship of Georgia and install. yeah, it's all grievance, totally it's personal. All, it's Everything. all grievance or or sort of perceived a personal a loyalty, right? And I do think it's one of the things that we get into in our book. All right, nice, yeah, right? Uh, you see what I did there for for all of yeah, Trump's, I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of, click away on Amazon.com <laughs> for all of Trump's a uh, sort of public facing command of the Republican Party. In private, he's taking a whole lot of risks that are uh, maybe not the brightest gambles. And I think you do yeah. hear more and more from uh, Republican officials at the ground level, even Republican voters at the ground level, are rationalizing uh, their own decision to do something that's something besides what Trump is telling them to do, right? That you know his advisors have steered him poorly in that one case, or he just doesn't know yeah. candidate yeah. X as well as I do. That doesn't mean that he's less powerful as a symbolic figure, but as an actual operational party leader, that's a pretty uh, ominous sign for him, I think. Yeah, but very yeah. telling because it's always personality with Trump. It's it's never that kind of calculus. One last Pennsylvania point. There's yeah. a MAGA grassroots fire running amok in the Republican gubernatorial primary yes. as well, all on the same ballot. You know, Lou Barletta, former congressman up from northeastern Pennsylvania, is old guard original Trump. And he's getting his clock cleaned in the primary right now, if you believe the polling. Uh, by a state senator, and I'm going to mangle the last name, Mastriano, I believe Mastriano, it is. yes. Yeah, who's another, you know, he's outrunning MAGA. You know, yes. he, he is beyond. He's, he's running on essentially a bring back the Middle Ages platform. Yes. And so here's an interesting twist. I, I kind of love this uh, little wrinkle here. Josh Shapiro's campaign, he is he's the attorney general, running unopposed. For unopposed for the nomination, has now gone up with ads, uh, ostensibly because they expect Mastriano to be the nominee. But I mean, I think the subtext here is they kind of hope he will be the nominee. And so they are running an ad before the Republican primary. Trying to help him. It's an in-kind. He's too conservative. Yeah, let's listen to it. This is Republican State Senator Doug Mastriano. 
He's the Republican who's ahead in the polls for governor. He wants to outlaw abortion. It's Mastriano who wrote the heartbeat bill in Pennsylvania. And he's one of Donald Trump's strongest supporters. He wants to end vote by mail. And he led the fight to audit the 2020 election. If Mastriano wins, it's a win for what Donald Trump stands for. Is that what we want in Pennsylvania? What a cheap shot. How dare he attack our fine Republican. <laughs> I mean, I'm voting for I mean that you're guy. right. This could be an in-kind contribution totally. to Mastriano in the primary. But, Clever, I love those little interventions. Um, we both uh, were guilty of that. Uh, I shouldn't say guilty. It's it's a fair. But we both uh, did that when we were consultants in the day. I, I remember doing that uh, to one of your clients in Iowa back in 2002. Uh, but... Uh, they're clearly trying to pick their opponent. We saw Claire McCaskill do this yeah. in Missouri back in No, it's very in vogue now. You know, you see it a lot. It's almost like the next ad will be, is it possible to be too loyal to Donald Trump? That's what many people say about conservative <laughs> They can be too clever, guys. They can be too clever by half. I mean, a lot of Democrats were like, oh, Donald Trump will be a great nominee to run against. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, oh, no, I agree. Wait till right. we have the five-point general uh, election in a, in a horrible Biden year, and those Shapiro guys are having the meeting in October saying, what the hell did we do? Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. All right, hackaroos, we're going to have a special commercial here. It's a love story between a heroic political consultant and a mattress. David, tell us about you and Helix. <laughs> yeah, man, you're exactly right. You know how much I need sleep. Have to have it. Love sleep, but I rarely get it, partly because it would, took a long time to find the right mattress. And then Helix came along. They came as a sponsor. They suggested I try the mattress. It's really a great mattress, and it's a unique approach to choosing a mattress and delivering a mattress. So, Mike, why don't you give some of the Details yeah, so Helix really has a cool formula here. They have a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I mean, why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you dial in with that sleep quiz to be perfect for the way you sleep. Because Helix knows that everybody is unique, so they have several different mattress models, and that's why that quiz is so important. They have soft, firm, medium mattresses. That mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattress is great. I could use this for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. There's even a Helix Plus mattress for plus size sleepers. So when you take that quiz like David did, you get matched up and you get success. Yeah, man. I, you know, I'm a side sleeper and this mattress is designed for that. I don't like soft. I don't like too firm. I got a medium mattress. I mean, and and by the way, you know, quizzes make me nervous. I never did very well <laughs> on them. So to have a quiz work out well really pleases me. But, uh, you know, you don't just have to take my word for it. Helix. And they shouldn't, by the way. We're, we're in politics and people are thinking <laughs> now, oh, these guys, there's a hundred dollar bill involved. We can't trust them. But Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. So just go to helixsleep.com slash hacks, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress like they did for me. That will give you the best sleep of your life. And here's the closer, Hackaroos. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try out your new Helix mattress for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, but we know you will. Helix also has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. And now Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and Two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash hacks. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash hacks. Claire McCaskill, she survived uh, because uh, in 2010, was it 2010 or 2000? 2012 12. by choosing her. But in 2010, Republicans nominated a candidate in uh, Delaware who had dabbled in witchcraft and another candidate in Nevada who uh, was uh, 
not uh, not Mensa, let's say that. And uh, and both those candidates went, uh, lost races that Republicans hoped to win. Is it possible that I'm sure Mitch McConnell is sitting there watching with horror uh, this race in Pennsylvania and wondering which way it's going to go? Uh, you know, in Wisconsin, they're stuck with Ron Johnson as their best bet. But, you know, he's sitting there with a approval rating, I think, in the 30s. Um, is it possible that they kind of get maggot out of control of the Senate here? I think it's definitely possible. I don't know that it's likely, given just how favorable the environment does seem to be for a Republican. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Ron Johnson. Uh, the man has defied a political gravity before, uh, and that's a state that's pretty uh, tough for Democrats, even. Uh, on a good day, and it's not likely uh, to be a particularly um, good day. But having said that, like the reality that, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania alone, one of the most competitive states in the country, you could have essentially the Republicans kneecap themselves at the start of the general election by nominating a ticket that's just wildly outside of the mainstream of the state. When they have had quite a bit of success there, uh, even nominating pretty conservative candidates, that would be uh, obviously a huge act of self-sabotage. And people, you know, uh, recalling 2010, people remember the big Senate races. Uh, there are uh, House races. There's a, a particular governor's race uh, where uh, Republicans nominated a, a sort of real far out candidate in Colorado who thought that uh, mm-hmm. bike lanes were a, a United Nations conspiracy, right? And overnight, uh, you go from uh, that state being a a major pickup opportunity to totally off the board. I don't know if that happens in Pennsylvania. I think we're in a different political environment now in so many ways where I, I don't know that Claire McCaskill wins that race against Todd Aiken in the politics of uh, 2022. But mm-hmm. for sure, this is a major, major concern for Republicans when the tide is this strongly in their favor. Uh, it's great for the general election, but it also leads to some pretty, can, can lead uh, to some pretty uh, wacky results in primaries. No doubt it adds risk, but this is the kind of year. I remember 1980, that's how old I am. You know, everybody was laughing about the Republican doofuses running in the Senate, and next thing you know, they're all being sworn in because the tide was big Steve enough. Steve Stims, where have you yeah. gone? Oh, that was my client, a fine, fine American <laughs> hero, my friend, Mr. New York Times. Uh, but, you know, Jerry Denton, a great war hero, but there were yeah. giggles about him, Alabama, Mac Mattingly yeah. in Georgia. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my point being, if you're Mitch, you, you hate seeing risk added because in a normal election year without a tidal wave, these guys are all trouble. But this could be the year where an Oz could win. Then the challenge for him is that it, it, that just sort of pushes off the risk, right? Like then you get to be Senate. Major- it's it's the classic. Yeah, that's mon- the point. That's a, yeah, ball, absolutely. Right? You get to be Senate majority leader. Right. All of a sudden, and your yeah. is Doctor Oz. Yeah. Mitch's thing is power, and he wants to be the majority leader. So job number one is to win the seats, and that's what he's concerned about now. The day after the election, he has to be concerned about what you're talking about, Alex, which is what do we have here? Because a lot of his allies, uh, almost everybody who's leaving the Senate are sort of center-right conventional Republicans who were his allies in the Senate, they're almost all going to be replaced by people who are going to be more MAGA-oriented, more challenging. Uh, the Senate's going to become a little bit more like the House, and it's going to be a nightmare. And, and more interested in dethroning McConnell. McConnell's base in the Senate will melt away. So this is something, guys, that that we have pressed him on uh, for the book, uh, uh, to bring it back once again uh, to our, <laughs> yeah. our our fantastic new Simon and Schuster published book. This will not <laughs> look. We we said, come on, like you don't want Mo Brooks to be a U.S. senator. Like, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's a Republican vote, but that changes the culture of the Senate. And obviously, he he won't engage on that stuff because he knows that if he publicly sort of frowns on Brooks, then Brooks can use that as rocket fuel for himself, given the nature of these primaries. But if you just add up, and I'm really going back to 2016. 16, 18, 20, and 22, the Republicans who either retired or were defeated, overwhelmingly, they are McConnell allies. And, you right. know, the classics were Lamar Alexander, Robert yeah. Fortman, right. Dan Coates, uh, old guard crowd. Uh, and they're being replaced by, they're being replaced by these figures who are either, you know, Josh Hawley, sort of, uh, you know, new style Trumpian nationalist, or being replaced by, conservatives who kind of have to walk on eggshells sort of fake being Trump. We have an anecdote in the book that nobody has picked up, but Alex and I really enjoyed. I, I know you guys will, and I wanted to just share it 
uh, Roger Marshall, who took the seat of Pat Roberts, a classic old guard Republican mm-hmm, right. senator from Kansas. Yes. And Marshall uh, was in the House. Ironically, won his House seat in the big first district because he was the chamber back candidate against a right winger. And now Marshall is having to portray himself publicly as sort of this this Trumpian right winger. In private, though, we report that he in 2021 would count the number of Trump references at GOP events in Kansas and would come back to DC and tell his colleagues in private, hey guys, good news. By the summer of 21, uh fewer activists are talking about Trump and using his name. This is a grown man, a U.S. senator, who's counting the number of Trump mentions at GOP events in Kansas and coming back to D.C. and reporting on this to his colleagues. It tells you everything about where the party is. Yeah, we all know that half of these guys are hiding in the basement, hoping they hear the Allied tanks roll into town and they can finally come out again. They're in total, total terror of Trump. And it, it is... You know, and they all just kind of shrug and say, well, that's the reality. I don't want to lose my primary. And and that's the leverage that lets Trump drive. I mean, the real tragedy is the Senate is turning into the House. Right. You know, where you have that kind of grandstanding. The inside game doesn't matter as much. Everybody's an independent operator. I mean, there's so much good stuff in your book. One of the uh, telling quotes was uh, was McConnell's when he was talking about pulling back from, uh, you know, his inclination, which was that Trump they should, you know, throw the book at Trump for what he did. And he said, you know, I didn't get, I, it was something, and I'm paraphrasing, you guys can quote it directly, I didn't get to be leader by following five people in my caucus. And I think that sums up McConnell's uh, feeling, which is, you know, uh, you, you know, the the thing about being leader is you've, you've got to stay there. That's how you exercise power. And so he's going to yield. But that's going to become harder and harder. Uh, for him now, uh, one week after I think it's one week after he uh, gets uh, uh, after this election, assuming he gets reelected as leader, he'll be the longest-standing leader in the history of the United States Senate, party leader, and I think that's part of the trophy that he's trying to uh, achieve here. And we'll see how long he wants to tolerate this after he goes in the. After he goes in the record book. X, can, can I interrupt the transition one sec just to tag our last thing? I'm going to make a flawless Murphy prediction here. If Trump is, God forbid, the nominee in 2024, that'll be Mitch's last term. He won't want to live through that again. All right. There you go. Write it down. Allison, uh, save this tape. Jeff, we'll replay it back uh, in, in the future. I was talking about West Virginia today. Yeah. There's a surrogate battle there. How do you guys size... This one, you've got two congressmen running. They were redistricted together. Uh, and uh, one is endorsed by Trump, the other by uh, the governor, uh, Justice, and, and Manchin, Manchin yeah. uh, who crossed over to endorse. It seems like the Trump guy has the edge there. Is that right? Yeah, so it's Mooney, the Trump congressman, now in the same district with McKinley, who committed the sin of voting for infrastructure and for right. the January 6th commission. So Manchin is all in on TV for him, along with Jim Justice, the governor. But Trump is for Mooney. What I love about this is one of the supermen has to lose, either Manchin or Trump in West Virginia. Polls show Mooney a little ahead, but what do you guys think? Look, I think this is a super interesting race, both because it tests the power of Trump's endorsement, the power of Manchin's endorsement, but it also just tests the sort of uh, uh, insular political culture of West Virginia, right? That I think by any conventional calculus, uh, somebody running with the um, uh, endorsement of, you know, bipartisan endorsement of Jim Justice and uh, Joe Manchin, having a, who's sort of uh, ostensible firing offense is voting for like a Rhodes bill in West Virginia. Uh, McKinley ought to do uh, just fine. And by the, by the way, the other guy is actually uh, from Maryland. Again, uh, that used to be the kind of thing that was disqualifying. Uh, yeah, the they're calling him Maryland Mooney. Yeah, and with good reason, because he's from Maryland. He was in a political career in Maryland. And, and by the way, for our listeners in West Virginia who are writing angry letters, Alex doesn't mean insular like they're related to each other. <laughs> in, in the West right. Virginia Okay, standard. great. All right. All right. All right. There yeah. you go. Send no, your angry like, mail to a, David Axel. A culturally, a culturally self-contained. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think it's important for, for all those reasons. And it's also a test of whether a sort of mansion style politics uh, is viable there going forward, right? That like hanging over so much of the mansion 
a drama over the last year that we detail in uh, a great depth in our book. 69% approval rating among Republicans right now. Right. And I think the bet that a lot of Democrats made dealing with Joe Manchin over the last uh, a year and change was the guy knows he's at the end of the line. He's not going to run again. He's going to go out with a bang or he's going to be willing to go out with a bang and sort of go big on his own legacy. Uh, or on the Republican side, uh, the wager that the guy knows that he can't get uh, reelected unless he ultimately switches parties. And so you know, maybe he'll be susceptible to one kind of appeal or another on that front. If McKinley does win this primary, I do think it's a statement on the or, or if he wins or comes very, very close. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's a statement on the viability of a certain brand of politics that like nationally on the Republican side doesn't get you very far. But in this state that punches so far above its weight uh, in congressional politics, I think it matter a lot. And cares a lot about tangible uh, deliverables uh, as well. It's a poor state. Uh, it's always been the case that those had bird for years. People who delivered stuff, uh, you know, uh, which may make the infrastructure thing uh, more popular than elsewhere. Just conjecture. What about Nebraska? You got a governor's race, uh, which is also pitting Trump against the a party establishment there. The yeah, governor Ricketts, Rick, Ricketts yeah. is on one side, uh, Trump on the other. That primary is uh, is today. His, his candidate is sort of tainted. And there's such a history of kind of decorous Republican politics in Nebraska. I mean, like this sort of line of governors who have been fairly a low key, uh, you know, sort of amiable uh, Midwesterners and. There's, there's now this flame throwing uh, uh, cattle semen baron. Uh, you heard that right? Uh, named Charles <laughs> Herbster, who is like given to wearing uh, the, like literally this sort of like black hat type outfit, uh, like black vest at all of his events, and is like Trump uh, acolyte number one. And to prove his fidelity to Trump, also has uh, Trumpian uh, affections for sexual pr- predation. Uh, he's been accused of um, uh, harassing uh, multiple women, and Trump is, of course, stuck by his endorsement. Uh, to say that this would be a break from the kind of Nebraska Republicanism is an understatement <laughs> if, uh, if he is to win. Um, but he is certainly a contender, and you know, unlike some other states where you know, Trump has kind of gone silent, Trump was out there recently campaigning for Herb Stir, so he, he's, he's certainly a contender. Um, you know, uh, um, David, you mentioned he's facing, uh, somebody else who, um, is sort of the, uh, the, the Rick gets more establishment. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, look, I think this would say a lot about just how much Trump has a hold on the grassroots of the party. Um, and to sort of flip Alex's point, uh, about West Virginia's culture, you know, I think would show the limits of local state politics and, and sort of culture and this idea of, well, that kind of thing doesn't happen here because we're different here. I think this would really upend that if Herb still went. Which means it will probably be happening because the old, the local walls are melting down. That's the internet. That's cult of persona people like Trump. We should make the mistake though. I think it would be a mistake to then deduce that, well, Trump lost this primary endorse uh, his endorsed candidate lost ergo Trump is weak and he can't win the party's nomination the fact is the party's still in the thrall of Trump it's different you, when Trump is on the ballot and I, I would not underestimate him I know all you guys Murphy over there in the bunker in uh, never Trump land are looking for glimmers of hope Oh, I think we have glimmers. I think, I think again, we, we disagree about this. It's in the thrall of Trump. The question is, is there a half-life? And will something new come along? There could be Trumpy in. And I think he can't rule that out, but we'll see. Well, that's what DeSantis is betting on, I guess. Uh, totally. And not a bad bet, in my view. Yeah, by the way, just on that, just an aside, you know, you guys saw yesterday that he declared Communist Victims Day. And now wants to and man and wants to mandate in the schools forty five minutes of instruction on the victims of communism. Uh, so he's mandating what the schools can't teach. He's mandating what the schools can teach. Is there are there and then obviously it's a good play in Florida. A lot of anti communists in Florida, 
But nationally, how far does this get him? How far does this get Oh, in a Republican primary, it's good. I think it's rocket fuel. I think the organizing principle behind the Republican coalition is now pugilism towards the left, contempt for the left, and a willingness to sort of call the left out at every turn. It has nothing to do with sort of small government principles. It's entirely organized around uh, opposition to the real and perceived threat of, of the left. Yeah, and I said before, I think I said last week about DeSantis and why he is worth watching. Uh, it, you know, if you look at the things that people, if you look at the complaints about Biden, you sit in focus groups and what are the complaints? He's too old. He's not muscular enough. He's That's not right. strong enough. So here comes this young guy who basically is the sort of captain of the football team who likes to throw the the geek against the uh, the uh, lockers as everybody laughs. Uh, and, you know, that's a pretty big contrast uh, that he's trying to drive. Uh, I still think Trump's a big obstacle for him. There's no question that if Trump were to, you know, decide that he wants to hang it up and spend more time with his uh, golf clubs, then DeSantis would obviously be in a great position to uh, step into the void. But I- I'm with you, David. I think that there's no evidence in the Republican primary so far that there is an appetite for uh, an anti-Trump uh, a candidate in the party. And the question is, is there a version of like a post-Trump candidate exactly. uh, that somebody like Mike could live with uh, who is also acceptable to uh, much of the sort of MAGA wing of the party? And I don't know who that person would be today, um, but certainly as a, a sort of post-Trump uh, uh, but pro-Trump candidate, there's nobody else in the same league as DeSantis. This is a little risky uh, with, the, with the hacks audience. I don't want to get too uh, too too continental here, guys, but. You know, as we sort of watch uh, Ferdinand Marcos' son uh, sweep to victory in the Philippines. Yes. and If the shoe fits. If the, uh, as it were, you know, thanks in part to the sort of uh, votes of people who are just peachy with the current president there and his yes. authoritarian tactics. I think we have to be clear-eyed about the appeal of sort of strongman politics and the fact that like, we're not immune to that, David. And you're talking about the sort of uh, almost sort of masculinity-style politics of DeSantis and how that would contrast with a sort of aged incumbent president. And we can sort of laugh at that, but like that actually matters, I think. You know? I'm not laughing. Yeah. I, I raised it. I think yeah. it could be powerful. Look, I think it's particularly in a time when people feel that things are sort of chaotic. That's right. Out of control. The, the strong, homelessness, the, the crime. Yeah, you know what? The strong yeah. man. In, uh, in times of fear, you sell security and strength. And we have a lot of cultural fear. Duterte, and since you since we're going global here, yeah, uh, Duterte in the Philippines rose to power as a guy who would kill drug dealers and right. uh, and 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 did and bragged about killing people uh, and uh, and and ended up uh, winning really on that platform. So yes, there is a there is a there is a market for it if you want to know just to do the international thing quickly you know who Donald Trump really was and i've said this a thousand times he was Juan Perón google him kids that was the trump model but it's the same point david's making okay then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back You know, Axe, our producer Allison is a health freak. It's depressing how healthy she is. and You know she was a high school soccer star. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that's well, absolutely true. We're now going to reveal the secret to her healthy lifestyle because she is nuts for athletic greens. She started taking athletic greens because... She wanted better gut health. She wanted more energy, which benefits us. She wanted to optimize her immune system. She hated taking pills and vitamins. Allison, am I getting it right? You sure are. What is in the magic elixir, our great sponsor, Athletic Greens? Well, here's how it works. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Did you say 75? 75. They 75 in there. If they, yeah. if they got 80 in there, you could fly. So they're being reasonable <laughs> here. 75. And all these ingredients together help you start your day right. 
right. This blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery focus, and helps you age in a healthy way. All the things that are important to a healthy life. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Contains less than one gram of sugar, which is good. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health. And let's face it, it's cheaper than that cold brew of yours. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews recommended by professional athletes and health experts. And again, all you do is take a scoop, mix it in, and feel better. And also recommended by Allison. And there you go. I want to be as healthy as Allison. I'm going to try some Athletic Greens. So right now, let's reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, especially as we head into flu and cold season. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day, that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash hacks. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hacks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Anyway, back to the transition. And then we should talk about Roe a little bit. Yes, well, that is the transition. Ah, you did it. You did I'm it. Kreskin. You know, what's interesting to me is watching these, uh, I mean, nobody in positions of Republican leadership is really eager to have this discussion. Uh, and, uh, you know, meanwhile, uh, you know, you hear, I mean, McConnell sort of said, yes, it's possible that we could ban uh, abortion nationally. I don't think he probably did that with great enthusiasm unless he thinks that that will bring more people out uh, in the fall. But generally, I'm wondering whether, uh, you know, these guys are the dogs that caught the car now and they're worried about getting run over by the car. Uh, because if you if 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 the discussion becomes, are we going to say to women who were raped uh, that you right. can that you have to you have to carry right. that child or, you know, does, is that a winning issue for Republicans uh, in November? And I think the, that the silence of a lot of Republicans on all of this, the the, the lack of eagerness to talk about uh, the whole issue is kind of an answer. Well, for most, not all Republican electeds, the life issue has been a check the box issue. Yeah, I'm for it. And then on to other stuff. Now it's real, which puts them, some of them in an uncomfortable place. It's a great reveal. It's sort of Alex and I talk right about this in the book and other contexts between sort of the, the two Republican parties. And obviously the public versus private uh, divide characterizes so much of the party uh, and so much of our reporting in the book as it applies to the GOP's view of Trump, but it also applies to this issue. The book, by the way, this shall not pass available yeah, on Amazon. Go ahead. It sure is. And also in bookstores everywhere, if you want to go indie too, uh, it should be out there in your local. <laughs> yeah, Theodore's uh, in local. Long Island or the Midtown Reader in Tallahassee, two of our favorites. It's right there in the window. Absolutely. Or uh, Garden District in New Orleans. So <laughs> look, we're going to find out. You know, We're going to find out what Republicans actually believe that uh, abortion is murder and uh, uh, are committed to uh, uh, ending what what they see as sort of decade long atrocity, and we'll see uh, which of those are Mike in, in your category of like you know check that box. You got to say this for a handful of sort of like uh, Knights of Columbus uh, uh, activists, but obviously much more comfortable talking about uh, 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 low taxes and uh, light regulation. But Alex, I mean, my my question is not w uh, whether who goes where, but uh, is there a recognition that this could go? sideways for them in November, that this is, in fact, uh, the thing that will bring out huge turnouts, that this could cost them the suburban voters, the suburban vote that they were hoping for, counting on, that this could activate uh, young people, and that uh, the the most uh, extreme uh, viewpoints on this, if they come to define uh, the Republican Party, could ruin what looks to be a really, really strong year for them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've not talked to any Republicans who think that 
it's poised to ruin the year, but I think that yeah. it could make it a lot more complicated and cost them some opportunities uh, that currently look pretty um, uh, inviting to them. Look, you know, right now, uh, I think the way to think about this is that every uh, important arrow uh, in this election is pointing in a favorable direction for Republicans. Yeah, uh, inflation, yeah. the public mood generally, uh, the cost of fuel, you know, president's approval rating, president's approval rating, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, you throw into there a really, really raw debate about abortion rights and and sort of fundamental uh, rights and autonomy of women. And that gets a lot more complicated. Um, I think there are clearly uh, going to be people in, you know, particularly in those moderate suburban areas that uh, decided the 2018 uh, elections who, you know, would be perfectly happy uh, to vote, to, to use their midterm vote uh, as kind of an FU to the Biden White House, who are going to think twice about that, depending uh, on uh, uh, what's on the ballot in terms of abortion and what folks on the other side of the debate are saying. I do think this is uh, one of these things uh, where Republicans potentially have a really big internal cultural problem uh, in the party where, you know, for as certainly as long as I've been alive, Republican candidates have been able to basically say whatever they want to say on abortion, and most voters have been able to, uh, you know, either sympathize with it or be appalled by it, but know that it's not going to have a whole lot of practical impact because Roe is there, right? And so I think there are a lot of folks in the party who have sort of not learned how to talk about this stuff in a thoughtful, modulated, legally responsible way. Um, you know, there are states, uh, take Georgia, right, where you're going to go from having a, a, a state that is, you know, governed by a, a Roe um, era uh, abortion regulation regime to, if that elite opinion reflects the final decision of the court, have one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. And Georgia's just not that kind of state anymore. So, yeah, I do think it can make things a lot more complicated. Yeah, I think the average R is like we have an inflation home run to hit and we're going to win. And now this thing adds a complication we could live without. But it's a fact of life. It won't hurt turn out in most of our places. So has to be managed. I, where I think the screw up is just to get to the politics of it. I think Schumer's doing a terrible job working this issue. You know, they're rushing into a Senate vote that's already a big snore because they don't have the, the votes to overcome the filibuster because of Manchin. He should have slowed down. There should have been rallies well, in cities. He should have built a big movement and crescendoed the movement with the vote in the Senate. Rather than rush into a defeat, build back better style, he, he, he blew a good card here. They need to create a big national movement about this and then have the D.C. stuff roll in to, to have, a, have a big moment. And, and they blew that. They're just shuffling into defeat right now. That is not Schumer. That is not Schumer. He is as subtle as a fart in a spacesuit. Okay. But, but the tactic of the vote now is bad. You know, Schumer's very, he's a very smart guy. He's obviously the majority leader for a reason. Uh, he, he, uh, but he uh, tends to think through a Washington lens. And, uh, and so, you know, this looks like a thoroughly tactical move. Uh, and it's and everybody knows the outcome. And in, in a sense, it, it contributes to us a, a feeling of futility and right. helplessness that I would be concerned about. Alex, I'm sorry. I, I no, 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 not at all. That's you're very much going in the same direction that I was going to go. And this is something that all kidding aside about like plugging our book. This is something that we go into a lot of detail on uh, in the book is the sense that like Chuck Schumer has a pretty limited playbook. Now that he's actually in charge of the Senate and that playbook seems to involve doing a lot of holding votes that, you know, are going to fail and that everybody in your party knows are going to fail and that your activists know uh, are going to fail so that you can say you've taken them. Uh, and it has no real political uh, impact. Uh, it certainly has no policy impact. And I do think it has contributed to this incredible uh, feeling of futility on the Democratic side that like. It, it, it's been a long time since I, I think anybody in democratic politics uh, was going to give Chuck Schumer credit for fighting the good fight and failing. Um, he sort of played that card one time. Yeah, he, he doesn't understand the theater of politics. You know, he, it's checklist stuff. And it, it may be brilliant in the beltway, but boy, oh boy, he's not moving the ball forward nationally for them. Yeah, no, view. no. I, I, I think that's a real, real valid point. But the uh, you talk about the inflation uh train. Uh, and, you know, today I think gas prices hit the highest uh, point ever in history. I, I don't know. Is that bad? Is that bad politically, do you think? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. When I was in the White House, I checked gas prices every single day, every single day, because to me, it's the most visible 
thing that people see. I mean, you know, you can watch the numbers go up. Yes, and, and same thing on cash registers. And it does kind of help shape the national psyche. I used to have an argument with my pal, uh, Joel Benenson, our pollster, who, who, who is brilliant. Uh, but he always insisted gas prices had no impact on people's thinking. I disagreed with that. Um, you know, so yeah, I think it's, that's problematical in the general sense that, uh, you know, prices, cost of living out of control, housing. I don't know what the way out is, honestly, between now and November, certainly. The problem is the way out is vote Republican. <laughs> that's the problem for the Democrats. And there's no easy policy fix here. You know, I think Biden's trying to engage on the issue, which is smart to at least get in the debate on it. But yeah. it's uh, it's a vice. Yes. This is something that Jonathan and I talk about a lot, though, is that it's sort of and when you're talking about the, the sort of futility of the Democratic legislative uh, strategy in a lot of ways, you know, the war in Ukraine started, uh, what, two months ago now and yes. change? Mm -hmm. And change, yeah. We, uh, gas prices were already an issue before that. And what we've had since then from the Democratic side is a series of these really piecemeal announcements about we're going to release some more barrels from the strategic petroleum reserve we're going to put some more money into uh, you know ev battery production but, but like where is the big centerpiece uh uh sort of legislative or executive uh you know package of legislation and executive action that says in a big comprehensive way that your party can run on we are really really serious uh, about uh energy uh, and fuel prices um I just don't see why it's not there. I, I get that they're very sensitive to the legislative politics, particularly around Joe Manchin. I get that they're sensitive to uh, the sort of internal Democratic uh, Party politics with uh, uh, climate activists. But it just seems to me like the moment has been crying out uh, for the White House or somebody else to put together a big signature a package of items on energy and then run like hell with it. And I just, for the life of me, I don't get uh, what the, what the, well, there's a, there's an internal contradiction because high gas prices are actually great to migrate people to more fuel efficient cars and, and stop mm -hmm. carbon emissions and save the planet. You know, the, the, the fact is the incentives don't get people to buy electric cars. What gets them to buy electric cars is high, high gas prices, which is why Europe has such higher sales of EVs than we do. They have the same subsidies. The, the real issue is the price of gas. So on one hand, they got the political interest, but the global policy interest isn't really aligned. It's hard for the Democrats to do drill, baby, drill. And, and so they're stuck. In the absence of having your own message that's not drill, baby, drill, but it's, listen, we're going to increase production in these ways in the short term while we set up the economy for a, a medium term a sweeping energy transition. If you don't do that and the only options are drill, baby, drill versus like every two and a half weeks, Joe Biden announces something totally forgettable. Like you're just asking to get your No, no, politically, but it I agree. Gets to the heart of Biden's limitations, he's a legislator who would you know, go on Codell's and do Sunday shows uh, that he, he's not a sort of visionary. He's not a natural executive in that sense. He's not going to come up uh, with this. And, you know, I think we have reference uh, in the in the book at the end that if you look at Biden, so it's somebody who took office at a moment of crisis and tried to be a sort of conciliatory figure, but on substantive matters sort of left a lot to be desired. It reminds us of an old term, you know, uh, Ford, not a Lincoln, right? I think the one thing that I don't know why they're not doing more of is kind of beating the shit out of the out, out of the oil companies. For that's not Biden either, actually. Yeah. No, I understand. No, I understand. I understand. But that you would say, what can you do? I mean, you need to point in a direction. Other, otherwise, everybody's pointing at you. What they are doing, but it's not a political issue, is they're out there trying to cut a deal with the Iranians and the Saudis for more supply. Um, you know, because they've got all the issues with Russia and everything else, and they're being pretty courageous on that, and that it drives up price. So, you know, I, I they're in a vice. I I kind of feel bad for them because they have. There's you're right about the optics. You can go bash big oil. I like big oil, but but politically it plays. I, you're so. you're not in a majority on that, but I know you do. <laughs> Hey, we got a book to plug here, right? Yeah, in our remaining minutes. I, I'm going to say with apologies, we're going to skip. The mailbag this we're week. We'll do a we, double mailbag. We'll, we'll incorporate these questions into next week's mailbag. But when you have two, not one, but two super hack yeah. talents here, uh, it, we, it takes up more time. Plus, we got to talk about this book. This will not pass. 
Um, and we started with McCarthy. I want to I want to talk a little bit about him because he is very likely, although not certain, uh, mm-hmm. he's very likely to be the next Speaker of the House. What I'll say medium likely. I'm not as optimistic, but to McCarthy, go ahead. I'm, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I have no skin in that game, <laughs> but uh, the, he is not exactly a heroic figure um, in this book. So talk about Kevin McCarthy, who's uh, captured on a lot of tape recordings uh, that you had that I think are really revealing. Uh, and then when you're done with that, just tell us where you got the tapes. Alice, go ahead. There's a second question there. <laughs> um, we will never, we'll never reveal where we got the tapes, but look, no, McCarthy is, uh, uh, an important character in this book, although frankly less because he individually, uh, is such an interesting and layered, uh, person, but more because he's a representative of a certain uh, kind of Republican leader and a certain Republican experience in this time, right? That uh, folks who've heard the tapes know that in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who had been this very, very loyal uh, sort of Trump stooge on Capitol Hill for four years, uh, was really anguished by what had happened and and said privately, you know, we got to do something about this. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to call him up and tell him um, to resign. And you know, he is a stand-in for so many other Republicans who uh, had that same visceral reaction to January 6th and then within a matter of weeks realized that their voters uh, were not deserting Donald Trump, that the rank and file of the House GOP uh, was not uh, uh, sort of breaking ranks uh, en masse, and that if you wanted to remain a leader in the Republican Party, um, you were going to need to have to be, uh, you're, you're going to have to be a very uh, brave uh, and daring kind of leader indeed if you were going to sustain uh, open war with Donald Trump. Um, I think McCarthy is in some ways one of the least complicated characters uh, in the book on the Republican side because he is so singularly driven by that goal of uh, attaining the speakership. And there's a moment in the book uh, in the spring of 2021 uh, where Biden is talking to an associate who's asking him, you know, how can the, how can McCarthy, how can the Republicans uh, behave like this? Is he really doing all this just because he wants to be a Speaker of the House? And Biden's response is, you know, don't, don't overestimate, don't ever overestimate the motives of the people uh, that I have to deal with. And I think in so many ways that sums up uh, the place of Kevin McCarthy in our story. Yeah. And he is a parable, as you say, uh, for politics generally. Uh, and Republican politics right now, you know, I always say, and I've said it probably here on this, you know, there's a reason Profiles and Courage was a slim volume. It's an unusual thing for politicians to sacrifice uh, their opportunities uh, in order to uh, stand up for a larger point. Part of it's psychological, though, with Kevin. I've known him a long time. He's a pleaser. He wants to please the room. I've seen him in action. People forget his first definitive experience in politics was working for Bill Thomas, the legendary appropriator. Uh, and Thomas was an incredible Ways gifted, and Meads chairman. Ways and Meads chairman, excuse me. A, a, a legendary operator in the House, but an incredibly abrasive and bullying personality. And he was a staff guy to Thomas. And I think it stuck. Yeah, to your point, there's a great little nugget in the book about McCarthy sending candy to Trump. And uh, talk about that. He selected only those flavors that his favorite brand of Starburst he would pick out and would send to uh, to Trump to, to please Trump. Also, <laughs> it's got to th- be orange. What was the favorite? Do you guys, I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet. He may have been a pink man. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. the, the thing about Kevin too is that he's a pleaser. He's also like forever the sort of nose against the glass, uh, you you know, just sort of loves the chance to sort of get inside the room and be with, um, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, here I am with uh, the governor or Donald Trump, here I am at at Mar-a-Lago. I think that that temptation of, uh, you know, being able to be seen and get your picture taken with famous people and sort of mix with them is so alluring for him. And actually, I think bigger than any ideological mission that he's on. And what is that? Yeah, I don't think he comes across as an ideologue at all. So what are the implications of that for him if he does become Speaker of the House? What are the implications for the country? Because, you know, you're going to have a a more uh, polarized house. Uh, a more polarized, you know, a, a more a right-leaning Republican caucus. Whatever keeps him in power, I think his judgment will be driven entirely by how to keep enough 
lawmakers placated so that he can retain his post. And to your point, that that means mostly pleasing the kind of Trumpist faction of the House GOP. And so that could mean, you know, uh, bringing up impeachment resolution against Biden at the first possible uh, moment. Uh, I don't think it's going to mean a lot uh, or really any cooperation with Biden. I mean, just look at the infrastructure bill, which got 19 Republican votes in the Senate. Would have had a couple more were it not for some guys who were in cycle in the Senate this year. And it comes over to the House um, and is decoupled from Build Back Better after um, the 2021 uh, electoral results. And like, you know, you know McCarthy still tries a, a torpedo. And why? Because Trump wanted the torpedo in. Again, a, a pleaser th- through and through. Let, let me pivot back because the book yeah. is about so much more than McCarthy, although yes, the tapes are please. delicious. I'm about two-thirds full, and I'm thoroughly enjoying the book available at Amazon.com. How you guys got all the sex and violence in it, I, I, it's an incredible craftsmanship. But it's what I like to call an invisible butterfly book, which are the best books in politics, which is you take a period of time, the election year and right afterward, and you go, you're like the invisible butterfly in the room at so many many places, the Biden decision to pick a VP, how that internal mechanic worked, all the January 6th stuff before and after. Can you talk a little bit about when you sat down to do this, what kind of the big idea was? Because you cover a lot of a lot of important real estate in kind of a synchronized way, and it's just loaded with stuff. So for the listener who may not know that much about the time period, the footprint of the book, maybe give us the kind of elevator pitch on that, because I think it's important. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I appreciate that, you know, I appreciate your description of the book in those terms, because that is very, very much what we set out to do. Uh, I think that we had the sense that maybe we should write a campaign book and that by the time uh, COVID struck uh, yeah. and then uh, sort of the, the post-George Floyd moment uh, sort of uh, uh, grew into what it became, it was pretty obvious to us that just like a traditional campaign book that starts with uh, the, the eventual winner announcing and ends with election day, that was just not going to cut it. Uh, and so our theory of this was basically uh, that we needed to talk to uh, as many different players in American politics in Washington, outside of Washington, uh, not treat uh, politics as just the story of the president, but the story of the Congress and not just the story of Washington, uh, but the story of states and even local governments uh, in some cases to really try to capture the breadth of disruption and crisis in the American political system uh, during this really, really trying time. So, you know, we talked to people who, uh, I think political journalists writing a, a campaign style book, I would never call up or sell them in our times mm-hmm. anyway. I call up the mayor uh, of Chicago or the mayor of Los Angeles because they're just not seen, uh, you know, as they were, you know, maybe a generation and a half ago as major players in presidential politics. But for the experience of a country stricken uh, by a pandemic and uh, uh, then uh, grappling with a reckoning on race and then eventually uh, battling over the mechanics of the transfer of power, uh, we just felt like uh, picking characters who we could zoom in on periodically, um, some of them again and again, some of them just as one-time narrators of particularly wrenching moments in their states and cities or in the halls of Congress, that that was going to give people a more panoramic view of what it was really like uh, to live through American politics in this time and hopefully contribute yeah. something that would be a compelling narrative for people today, but that for somebody who you know reads this in 10 years or 20 years uh, would be able to sort of really understand, okay, so that's how that. You, you really feel like you're inside a lot of rooms, which is really hard to do. The title of the book, This Will Not Pass, operates on a bunch of different levels, but it has a kind of ominous, an ominous sort of overtone to it, which is maybe we have passed into a form of American politics that's going to be hard to escape. Yeah, no, I think it's our belief that 2020 didn't end with election day and the Trump era didn't end with election day. And that goes to the heart of why we didn't just want to do a Trump book. We didn't just want to do a campaign book because the story is so much bigger. And the story is mm-hmm. both modern political parties wrestling with um, a deeply polarized country that does not agree on shared facts anymore and that is trying to sort of contain coalitions, which are very hard to contain. And obviously, the more sort of vivid, uh, uh, you know, uh, outward facing story is that of the Republicans uh, and and in the Trump era, which is ongoing uh, 
for all the reasons that we've discussed for the last uh, hour here. But it's also, I think, equally interesting to sort of zoom in on Democrats and get in the room with Democrats to capture how they are responding to January right. 6th, to Trumpism, and to their own party, which is facing uh, screens also from within. Yeah. Because the the Big Tent has served them well uh, in a couple of cycles, but the Big Tent can create immense governing challenges when your party obviously spans from Joe Manchin to AOC. It, it, it can create real difficulties. And when you have a president who's more... Uh, caretaker that he is visionary, it compounds those challenges. Yeah, we got to leave it there. But uh, it really is a great book. This will not pass. And we appreciate you guys uh, being with us. We only for you would we waive the one guest at a time rule. Uh, but we're glad to have both of you and hope you guys will be back soon. Incredible book, guys. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. And uh, I know that some of your listeners are live in cities that you guys call home and would be thrilled to ha have, have folks come out and see us. You can see our schedule. We're going to be in Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Portland, and other cities beyond that. Chevalier's local bookstore in my hood doing a little event there and some other stuff. And the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago on uh, Thursday night. This will not pass .com. Just click on schedule and you'll find where we are going to be. All right, guys. And next year, the ice show. And that's what I'm really waiting for. All right, guys. <laughs> congratulations. Axe, good to chat. Thanks, guys. All right, see you next time, pal.